Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Slate Money is sponsored by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet, and get a free 30-day trial by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. Hello, and Welcome to the Money for Nothing edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, and I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. Hi, Kathy. And also Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Happy to be here with you two lovely people. This week, we are going to talk about the music industry and the recording artists who are taking some unusual approaches to how they get paid for what they do. Uh, we are also going to take a look at how a 20-something investor sparked a plunge in the share price of lumber liquidators. And as we hinted at last year, I wouldn't say promised because I try not to make promises, I break them too much, we will talk a little bit more about the wonderful subject of patent trolls. So I think that we should start with music because music makes everybody happy. It does. Well, I, I want to start off. Felix, are you a fan of the Wu-Tang? I, I like a fair amount of Wu-Tang. The um, interesting thing about Wu-Tang is they have roughly twice as large a vocabulary as any other rap they rapper do. or rap group in the world. They really spit awesome they spit lyrics. they spit fire uh kathy are you are you down with the woo are you a killer bee uh you know i <laughs> learned about this to this week i listened to my first wu-tang clan song this morning so i would not say i'm a fan but i enjoyed the song 
Uh, so I'm I'm not a Wu Tang obsessive, but I think like most twenty something nerds, I do have love for the Wu Tang. Uh, who, for those who don't know, they are one of the essential '90s rap groups, and they've con- they continued making great music out up through the last decade. Anyway, why are they in the news? Well, Wu Tang is producing its last album, or so they say. Last ever. Last ever. That's what they say. This is. It's called Once a Time in Shaolin. However, this isn't your typical. Uh, album. This isn't your typical album sale. What they've done is they've created this this piece of music, and they say they are pressing a single copy. Well, they have pressed. Well, they have pressed a single and copy, they did this and they like over a year and, ago. And they've destroyed, supposedly destroyed all of the other digital versions. All there is nothing but this one hard copy left, which they for a year now, and they are planning to sell it like a piece of fine art to a bidder. Uh, they, they, they put out a press release about a year ago explaining yeah. what the hell they were doing, where they were saying, we want our art to be valued like that of Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yes. I uh, think that... Wait a second. Felix, you're the art snob among us. To what extent is an album put out by a music group anything like fine art? Very, very little is the answer, Kathy, because there's a couple of like key issues here. Number one, if they want to be valued like Jean-Michel Basquiat, one of the key things that Jean-Michel Basquiat did in order to become valuable was die. Uh, (laughs) Are they willing to die, Jordan? Are they willing to die for their art? (laughs) Sadly, sadly, old dirty bastard is no longer with us. So one one of the members is gone. He was also not on this album. The um, the other thing that Jean-Michel Basquiat did was he made, you, you know, Objects which are not only unique, but are unique for a reason. You can't just sort of press a button and copy them. Whereas music, and especially this kind of music, but all music really, is a, is a fundamentally collective experience. For all that we listen to music, you know, individually on headphones on the subway, you know, it's about everyone knowing the songs. It's about having a shared experience. It's about sharing your Spotify playlist. It's about going to concerts where everyone is listening to the same thing at the same time in a live experience. And the idea of just gratuitously getting rid of all of that for the sake of some half-baked idea about value is insane. So I, I, I disagree with you on a lot of fronts here. Um, but there's a lot going on. It's going to take a little while to unpack. Um, first, I, I think since we are Slate Money, I want to address the financial end of this, which is, you know, you have to remember we're talking about a very specific group, the Wu-Tang Clan. They are essentially now a, they're not a cult act. They've got a much bigger fan base than that, but they're an older rap group that doesn't do a ton in sales. Um, I think their last album when it came out had about 27,000 in its first week. Um, they don't put up big numbers anymore. I have a hunch, however, they do have an incredibly obsessive fan base. Uh, I have a hunch that you could pro- they might be able to make more money doing this if they can just get two very wealthy rap nerds to essentially bid against each wait, other. So, wait, I'm sorry. So, I'm, yeah. Do you think they're doing it for the money, though? No, I think that I'm starting off with the money. I don't think it's for the okay. money. The second part is I agree with Felix that the direct comparison to the art world is a little bit weird and, and, and slightly confused. Uh, there, there, some of the background here is hip hop in general has kind of developed this fascination with high art and high culture. And I think some of that is sort of natural. Uh, rap has always sort of been about status, status amongst you know MCs and whatnot, but also versus the larger culture. Right. And as some of these guys have gotten more successful and more rich, they're not just, you know, guys like Jay-Z aren't just comparing themselves to other people in the music industry. They're comparing themselves mentally to the great geniuses, great artists that their new peer group kind of obsessed, kind of like to talk about like Warhol or whatnot. And so you literally see references to things like Warhol, 
to people like Warhol or Basquiat go, coming up more frequently in rap albums themselves now. Um, and you can look at the data on Genius and see that. Um, and, you know, Jay-Z himself did this whole performance with Maria Abramovich a while ago where he was doing uh, Picasso Baby Live. And so there's been this kind of growing intersection between rap and high art, for better or worse. I don't think that selling a... And the reason we're talking about this week is the album was being hit, by the way, was was hidden off in Morocco somewhere in a special nickel-plated box that had been carved by an artisan. And they just brought it overseas. They previewed some of it at MoMA PS1 for journalists to hear. And apparently the sale is getting going in uh, earnest. But I don't think it's like a painting. However, Wu-Tang has this weird sort of philosophy slash mythology or shtick, whatever you want to call it. And there was this thing that Raekwon, one of the rappers, said that I thought was interesting. He said, owning this will be like owning the scepter of a pharaoh. And I think that's more what this is. It's owning a relic. It's owning, I have the one copy of the last album that will ever be made by these people, supposedly. And to a certain kind of person, that has, I think, value at... They're trying to create value there the same way it almost would in antiquity. So I think culturally there's something interesting. So, so, but like... Yeah. Okay, so the first thing which I need to jump in here and say is, if you buy this Mm -hmm. and they want... a seven-figure sum. It's not clear how much they're asking. It's not clear why they have managed to go a year without even coming close to selling it. Um, But if you buy it, you have every right to just torrent it. You are allowed to give it away to the world. And I have a reasonable expectation that that's exactly what is going to end up happening. Because music is a it has what's known as positive externalities. The value of your album, you know, it becomes a better album. It becomes part of the cultural discourse um, if everybody knows it, if everybody knows what it's like. If I owned it and I wanted everyone to, you know, and I liked it, I would want everyone to be able to hear it and I would give it away. I can't imagine why someone would buy it and then not do that. Well, I think it is for that sort of like cult value saying I have, like some buyers, however... I, I did talk to Paddle 8, the, the dealers, and they told me something interesting yesterday that hasn't really been covered too much. There's been some mention of it, which is that they're, it seems like they're actually interested in selling to either a, quote, institutional buyer or someone who will give it to an institutional buyer, which usually means a museum. Um, so there is one other potential option here that I see the way that this could unfold, which would be kind of cool in my opinion, which is you might just get a buyer with more money than necessarily sense who sort of like there's a Rothko temple in Houston, you could end up with a Wu-Tang temple somewhere in Staten Island or something or like in New York. And so I think that does open up interesting possibilities for what could be done with it beyond just a guy buying it and keeping it at home or just torrenting it because he wants the whole world to hear. There might be some middle ground that could be fun. I have a bluegrass band and I'm going to go with Felix on saying that... It's, it doesn't make sense to do music by yourself. Although I'll, one hesitation I, I, is that, you know, you go to these really fancy bar mitzvahs in New York and they, they get, you know, singers to come sing live concerts to the bar mitzvah. That is status, right? If you get a famous singer. But I was going to say that I am happy to make a rip a CD of our songs and sell it for millions of dollars um, to, for my bluegrass band. Anybody who wants to buy it. I guess my point so is, like, the, and, is this really a new model of the music industry? No, no, no. I don't think anyone is going to try and replicate this. This is a bizarre sort of one-off yeah. stunt. And we're going to talk in a second about Amanda Palmer, which she has a new model, which is much more re- replicable. And it's based on something similar. That I agree with. But before... <laughs> um, before we do that, I think it's worth also just briefly bringing up this guy, Peter Lick, uh, 
who's a photographer um, based in Las Vegas, who just sold or claims to have sold a unique photograph, which is a truly atrocious it's, photograph. It's awful. Like, um, it's truly for awful. For $6.5 million. Now, no one knows really who the buyer was or whether it was actually sold for $6.5 million. But the point is that, especially in a place like Las Vegas, all manner of weird shit happens. <laughs> and so it's possible that the Wu-Tang Clan will find one person. And this is the thing. You don't even need an underbidder. You don't even need two people who are willing to pay, you know, $2 million for this thing. All you need is one and the clan to just be very smart in the way they negotiate and say, you can have this for $2 million. And there might be one person out there who will do that. Um, you know, and when we get to the end of the show with my number, um, we might have a hint of who that one person might be. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't seem $2 million would even recover their costs of making this, not to mention the, the nickel-plated uh, box. Uh, the nickel-plated cost, box costs nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, but it was carved, so it was hand apparently hand-carved by a Moroccan artist in Marrakesh with 13 assistants or something. Again, they're very into numbers. It's just, it's it's all part, and that's, so they're also, there, there's a, uh, again, this clause in the deal that you can't sell it. You're not allowed to release it commercially for 88 years if you purchase this thing, but you are allowed to give it away for free, that is. And, and yeah, this, this clause and, about not being able to release it commercially is a bit of a red herring. No one yeah. is going to buy it and say, well, I'm going to buy it and then release yeah. it commercially and make money off it. No, That's I mean, that would totally not mm-hmm. an option. Totally yeah. ruin the point of, yes. of buying this thing. I mean, that would be the absolute worst way to go about it. But anyway, so yes, you have a, a cult act that has been looking for one obsessive fan to buy, essentially. Right. It, let's go to the flip side of a cult act who's looking for lots of obsessive fans. Well, to not, not lots, like somewhere in the region of a couple of thousand. Are we Is talking it, about yes. a man of Right We're now? talking about Amanda yeah. Palmer. So Amanda Palmer, um, for those just a little background who don't know her, is a pretty well-known artist now. She got her start in the early 2000s with a band called the Dresden Dolls that described themselves as a, a Brechtian cabaret punk act. And then she went solo in 2008. Um, singer, songwriter, pianist uh, has done some... Uh, anyway, she's done some good stuff. Felix, I believe, is a fan. Uh, and she does have this very dedicated... Uh, de- Felix, what do you know about Amanda? Very dedicated... I, I know Amanda... Pretty well, and um, I really love the Dresden Dolls, and I am absolutely fascinated by the way that she has tried to create a sustainable business model out of having a very fervent but not particularly enormous fan base. And so that brings us to the news about her this week, which is that there's this new service called. Um, Patreon, which essentially it's sort of like it's a bit like Kickstarter. The idea is that an artist puts himself on there and tells their patrons that or ask their patrons to give them money, essentially, every time they produce a new work of art. So every time I create a new song, a new single, a new album, you'll give me X amount of money. I believe now Amanda Palmer has enough uh, patrons or on Patreon to uh, give her fourteen thousand dollars every time she makes a new song. Now is that the number? Yeah, I feel it's, I believe. it's higher than it's that. Hi- now, yeah. Higher than that now. I mean, it's so she's making. I mean, a real go of it on this platform and showing this is one option for a a certain kind of indie artist. I would say specifically, so especially basically, the key thing is yeah. you need something with zero marginal cost of production that you can give away the song for free. And that creates a whole bunch of opportunities in terms of the business model here. Because what Amanda did last time was she famously raised over a million dollars on a Kickstarter for her new for her last album. 
Um, but one of the problems with that is that with the Kickstarter rewards, they were all sort of physical. They were stuff which needed to be made, books, albums, you know, sent out in the mail. It was a massive logistical mess. And what happened was the idea was that this would give her enough money to go on tour and then create a big album which would sell very well. Turns out that basically everyone who wanted to buy the album supported the Kickstarter and then <laughs> yeah. no one really bought it after the album after the album came out. And so Amanda said, well, why, why try and put all of this effort into touring the world and really, really trying to sell, become like a mass Art, uh, you know, a mass artist, when that's really not who I am, I have a small and fervent fan base, I should just make stuff for them. And she can, and she's found this way of doing it where she can actually make good money from that. So I actually, it might not, might not surprise you to hear that I've known Amanda Palmer since she was 12. Because <laughs> she went to Lexington Public Schools like I did. And I actually met her when she was 12. She was always a very remarkable young lady. Very remarkable. Is that, is that a euphemism? Um, <laughs> I mean, she stood out. She looked like yeah. a grown-up. Um, you know, she remember Taxi Driver, that movie. She, you know, she really looked uh, like Jodie Foster. Wow, that's um, that's something. And then she, and then I, I sort of bumped into her a bunch of times as the Ice Princess in Harvard Square. You know, she was a performance artist. Um, she actually dated the guy that lived in my parents' basement, um, who introduced her to German techno. Anyway, my point is that she has this incredible draw for some people, and that is, I, I would call her basically a cult leader, um, and you know, not necessarily a bad in a bad way. Um, but I'm just wondering, you know, this new model that she has, is that only going to work for people that have a kind of a cult leader quality? I don't because know. not all artists do that. I mean, it's pretty hard for, it's never been easy for indie artists to make a living, you know, long into their careers. Um, and the successful ones do tend to have a, I, I, you know, what, you, what we call a cult audience. I don't think they yeah. quite need to have the same personal connection but with, also, Amanda Palmer it, it, has, this but isn't an exclusive thing. No, it's not no. either you follow the Amanda Palmer model or yeah. you follow the existing model of just touring all the time and blah, blah, blah. It's something which can be used to augment your income. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you can, you can, if you're a band or an artist, of, you know, a musical artist of any description, really, you can do both. Just keep on doing exactly what you're doing, but also have the Patreon income you know, in addition, it's it's purely additional. It's purely extra money. That's good. Yeah, I think there is this this weird um, tension or, or this this weird kind of dissonance about among music fans right now. No pun intended. But um, they, you know, they really a lot of them don't want to pay for music. Clearly, they want to stream it for free. Um, at the same, they want as much variety as possible. And paying, deciding to pay for music limits the amount of things you can listen to. At the same time, they really do like the idea of support. Some of them really, really do like the idea of supporting artists. And those are often the same people. The ones who want to be able to consume as much music as possible and stream everything are the same people who really care about it. And so this is a way of resolving that in a way. It's saying, okay, well, I'm going to stream everything. And so it doesn't really make sense for me to buy albums. But at the same time... I can still directly support a few artists who I really like. Mm-hmm. And 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 the one thing which you do need to do if you do the Patreon model, I'm pretty sure, is be very enthusiastic about giving your music away for free. Um, so yeah. it's it's not like the Patreon backers get the get get something get get a piece of music which no one else can get. That music is going to be out on YouTube. It's going to be out on band camp it's going to be out on soundcloud and you are people are going to be able to stream it on spotify and do everything else which they like to do in the sort of free music world so it's in some sense like an advanced tip like you're tipping people for the stuff they've made but you're tipping them in advance for whatever they're about to make 
Right. And it's giving them an economic incentive to make more stuff. And that's exactly yeah. what you want them to do. They know it's coming. You're paying, you're paying for future work rather than past work. And I kind of like that model. Yeah, it's it cool. says, I know. You're basically on contract at that point. You're, mm-hmm. you, you've patronage, you know. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably more than um, anyone ever wanted to hear on the music industry. Maybe one, one day we'll have Bob Left sets on and have more. But I think we've maybe done music for the time being. Um, what we are going to move on to now is the very, very exciting part of the Slate Money podcast where Kathy and Jordan are going to explain why, when it's freezing cold outside, what you need to do is... Well, what do you need to do, Kathy? I think you need to meet your clients and coworkers online with Citrix GoToMeeting because it's the smarter way to meet. Is that why we are happy to have Citrix GoToMeeting as our sponsor of Slate Money? We're very happy about that, especially on these days of long snow days where you're just like, maybe your kid's school is going to get canceled. You don't know, but you don't want to cancel all those important meetings and lose the momentum you have on your project. I, I think if nothing else, the last couple of weeks have shown the value of Citrix GoToMeeting. We've been blanketed in snow and it has been very hard to get business done. You know, I'd like to talk a little bit more about it. GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to, wherever you are. With GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer or or mobile device without travel expenses or hassles of traffic or snow days. You can turn on your webcam, and with HD HD quality, it's like being in the same room. Everyone sees what you're seeing, so your team can get on the same page and get going. So try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. That's GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. Kathy. Yes. Talking of good ideas, is shorting stock in lumber liquidators a good idea? You know, it was a little while ago. Um, you know, it's always it's always uh, scary to say you could you should do something on the stock market that was a good idea yesterday. But let me explain uh, the backstory a little bit. Um, so, lumber liquidators got into the spotlight recently on a sixty minutes episode, but the story actually starts uh, a year before that. Um, in June twentieth of twenty thirteen, there was a um, this guy named. J- Zhuhua Zhao, who was born and raised in China, um, published a post on Seeking Alpha explaining that lumber liquidators were sort of using low-quality lumber from China with extra, extra um, doses of formaldehyde. Now, formaldehyde, we, we have to explain here, is something... When you buy cheap flooring rather than the expensive hardwood flooring, what you're basically buying is a bunch of bits of wood glued together rather than a piece of wood. Right. And the glue, if it's cheap glue, contains large amounts of formaldehyde. Right. And formaldehyde is bad for you. It's a carcinogen. Yeah. And it also gives you all sorts of problems breathing, especially children. So it's it's a bad idea to have like to have flooring that has lots of formaldehyde. Now, there's lots of details about this. If you go to the 60 Minutes episode, which I highly recommend you do, um, they do all sorts of tests, and then they talk to the CEO of Lumber Liquidators, and Lumber Liquidators CEO, is like, or at least the representative, says, well, you know, we we test it differently. And our, according to our test, all, these, um, all this lumber passes the test, and you guys are testing it wrong. But then, you know, there's all sorts of reasons to think that they might be exaggerating that. Both Zhao and the 60 Minutes reporters did a bunch of tests, and they found things like six on average the test the the lumber they got that was from china was six times higher in formaldehyde than it was allowed by california law now so this is the other thing which is making this this short bet because of course there are lots of short sellers here because lumber liquidators is a public company this is one of the things which is making the short bet quite lucrative is that 
while there's not much in the way of regulations about how much formaldehyde you can have in your flooring, there is an exception to that rule, and that exception is California. And so everything which lumber liquidators sells, they try, well, they should try and make sure that it lives up to California standards because, A, they sell a lot in California, and, B, those California standards are probably going to wind up being rolled out to the rest of the country. But so the... The only really, the only real regulations here which matter are the California regulations. That's interesting. I didn't even know that. But they did test uh, after the sixty minutes thing went up. Like there's been further tests, and they've been finding that yes, in fact, it's all over the country. They have these problems with uh, formaldehyde. So, you know, the the part about this story that interests me is that again, it started with this twenty five year old kid, essentially. You know, I, he, he was well, he, a, he was, was a, a do- in yeah. a doctoral program at UCL and UCLA in Good finance. Point. He Good quit. Point. He's as much of a kid as I am, if he, not less of a kid. Let's be real. He basically here. is like, what yeah. am I doing in in a yeah. doctoral program when I could just be making money on the market? Let me amend my. Let me amend that. And there it is started a, with a twenty five year old genius <laughs> who, who, but just a random, just a per, one person who decided that he was going to start researching this and, yeah. and just hunting down the these details and and figuring out what was behind what was going on at lumber liquidators. Yeah. And again, what I find fascinating about this is for a good short seller, what motivates them in the end is basically the same impulse that motivates like a good investigative journalist, yes. right? It's the same idea of just like finding a company where something shady going on yep. where you can when you can expose that they've been bullshitting you. Yep. They've been bullshitting the market. So yeah, short sellers and investigative journalists have always been best friends, you know, um Enron was basically the product or that the end of Enron was a product of a, you know, one of those short seller investigative journalist unions, as have many other things. The techniques are very similar. So why do short sellers get the bad rap? Because even in the 60 Minutes episode, you know, the guy at front, you know, representing um, the lumber liquidators was like, oh, there's just a bunch of short sellers saying this stuff. People, yeah, for some reason, short selling is considered un-American in some way. And so if you are a short seller, especially if you're an aggressive short seller who's accusing a company of being fraudulent, there's a very good chance that you will wind up having SEC investigations against you and stuff like that because somehow the... The, the the financial establishment has never really taken short sellers as a good thing. They yeah, think I mean, that it's a bad thing. Right. It, it's bad news that you don't want to hear. It's kind of like your friends are getting divorced and you're like, oh, my God, that mean, must mean your marriage is bad. But they just don't want to hear it. So they tell you not and to And then divorce. when, you know, I don't know if you remember during the financial crisis. Yes. They actually banned short selling That's in right. this long list of financial yep. companies because it was considered to be such a bad thing. Whereas... In fact, what short selling does is it basically just enables price discovery. So in retrospect, and that's exactly what I was going to bring up, Felix, in retrospect, those bans on short selling of financial companies like banks were, I mean, that were just, it was a purely political ploy. And it didn't, you know, what they were trying attempting to do was convince the market that these banks weren't so bad. But okay, they really so here's, were. So here's the, here's the irony is that these bans were put in by very sophisticated people like Hank Paulson, who knew exactly why short selling is a good thing. And they were put in despite everyone knowing that short selling is a good thing. And here's the crazy thing. They actually worked. Yeah. The, the, Short term. Yes. But that was all you needed. Well, wasn't the idea... So well, explain, the, the, what, explain So that. all okay. we needed was... What we had was we had a, a panic situation in yeah. the market where everyone wanted to get out at the same time. And the way you make money from a panic is by short-selling stocks and then making a profit when they fall. And short-selling stocks itself helps contribute to the panic. And 
no one really knows in these situations what the fair value of a company is. All they're doing is they're playing the momentum, and the momentum is downwards. By putting a ban on short selling in, what you do is you make it much harder to monetize panic. And if it's harder to monetize panic and harder to create a panic, then you're less likely to have a panic. And if you don't have a panic, then everyone is better off. I mean, I have a different view, which is that, it, yes, it interrupted the the downward spiral. But a lot of these companies were essentially bankrupt. So maybe they should have gone down, you know? Well, no. It, actually, if you look at the list of stocks which were, where the short selling was banned, most of them came through, like, once the ban was put in place... You know, and then fast forward, you know, a year or two to see what the fair value turned out to be. It was higher than where they where the ban was put in place. There's a Fed study that came out that said that that short selling bans actually don't work, and they looked at um, maybe they weren't thinking very short term, like we're talking about, um, but they were looking at like the ones in France and Spain. That like short selling bans happened all over the place during the crisis. Well, I think that doesn't that speak to sort of you have to be very careful about the the lesson of of what went on during the financial crisis or this spe- or this specific move by Hank Paulson and whatnot like that this was a particular moment where there was a, a contagion going on and so it might have worked right there for this brief spark but it's not right. something to repeat every time a company looks like it's in trouble so in certainly, any case, certainly there's no point in putting a ban on short selling something like lumber liquidators yeah i was yeah. going to bring and back the, to that and yeah. the and the you know and what we're seeing here for instance what the 60 minutes uh, journalists did, which was fantastic, was they actually sent a bunch of undercover reporters to China to the companies which were making lumber liquidators flooring, and they got people on the record saying, "Yeah, we're labeling these things as compliant <laughs> with California right. regulations, but they're not. If you want them to actually be compliant with the California regulations, you're going to have to pay much more money for them." It's it amazing. Was pretty smoking yeah, gun. Yeah. It's, it's amazing <laughs> that Chinese factories haven't figured out like a series of euphemisms for like we're we're we are grossly I violating. <laughs> I love that guy. Love. Whoever whoever that guy is, thank you for saying that. But there is a big business now um, as the Chinese stock market has exploded and as China as an industrial and manufacturing base has exploded and the number of Chinese billionaires has exploded. There's a lot of very dodgy stuff going on in China. It's really wild west. And a few people have realized that there's a lot of money to be made exposing the dodgy stuff in China. Good for them. I want them to do it. So, Yeah. yeah, good for them. And so... From cheering on the short sellers, which is something I'm always happy to do as a journalist, um, we are going to move on to the topic which we were talking about a little bit last week, which is patent trolls. Um, Kathy, your number last week was the amount of money that a patent troll had managed to get awarded from Apple. It was over half a billion dollars. And we got a bunch of interesting feedback, including a long email from a patent lawyer in Australia who was trying to defend this practice um, and was saying, but, you know, this is this is just capitalism that you, you know, you buy and sell intellectual property and that it's very important that you can protect your intellectual property. Otherwise, you won't be able to make any money. And there's a reason for patents. And if there's a reason for patents, they ought to be traded. And if they can be traded, they ought to be litigable. And what's wrong here? Well, so I have a I think I have a good way to describe what actually is a big part of what's gone wrong in the whole world of patents, which is there are just like really bad patents being issued 
I mean, just really low quality patents being issued that probably should never have been issued in the first place. But I call this sort of the, the fortune cookie theory of, of patent law. Um, and, you know, the old joke yeah, with the fortune cookie, you just put in bed at the end of every sentence and it makes a joke out of it. Like, <laughs> you'll have great fortune in bed. Keep your enemies close, your friends close and your enemies closer in bed. Ha ha ha. Well, for a while, patent law practically worked the same way, except it was on the Internet. They would say you would take a very normal business practice like credit card transaction or putting something in a cart, buying something and putting it in another part of the site, or putting it in a digital shopping cart, but that just say, on the internet. And suddenly you had a patent. And so they just let all these people patent these extremely broad concepts that were really fundamental to anybody doing any kind of reasonable e-commerce. And so it led to patent trolls getting a hold of these low-quality patents, stocking them up, and then essentially... I mean, I, I would say mugging corporate America and companies that are doing real innovation through these patent litigation firms, these patent trolls, um, just kind of pulling a little bit of money out of companies. And that it are wasn't to even work. a little bit of money. I a mean, lot of money. Yeah. You know, people that, that sort of received wisdom these days is that the invention of the iPhone was what was responsible for killing the BlackBerry. But really what was responsible for killing the BlackBerry was a lawsuit from a patent troll. And that lawsuit damaged research in motion that you know blackberry's parent company so badly that they essentially just went to zero okay i'm going to defend patents go on because somebody has to defend patents well i think there's it depends on the type of patent. Oh, okay, i, I yeah. think and i really enjoyed uh the emails from our listener in australia rob mcginnis um he makes the really very convincing point that patents as, as we can go into this but as patents as a rule is a pretty good system there's obviously marginal problems with it. But the single biggest problem, Rob points out, is that it is too easy to sue people for patent infringement. And in particular, you don't you don't and take any risks. In Texas, where there's like the one town in Texas where all the juries always seem to find in favor the, the of the right. Eastern trolls. District of Texas Texas is known as the Rocket Docket. Okay, so <laughs> so in order to make this argument uh, clean, I want us to define patent trolls. Okay, That's so let me. I, I will. I will do. I will do my 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 best at defining patent trolls, and I'm going to define them quite broadly. It's quite easy to find one or two super egregious ones, and I can highly recommend listening to the This American Life episode uh, on on patent trolls who found some very very egregious ones. But I would basically just say that let's take the biggest granddaddy of them all. This company called Intellectual Ventures, which was founded by Nathan Mervold, who's a co-founder of Microsoft. And what Intellectual Ventures does is they get a bunch of really, really smart people in a room over and over and over again and have them come up with lots and lots of ideas. And and then what they do is they go out, go out and patent those ideas. And that's it. They don't try and make money off those ideas. They don't try to... Um, turn the ideas into products. Occasionally, they'll find other people with good ideas and they'll buy the patents off them. But then they just sit on this huge patent portfolio and then they ransom anyone who has the same idea. That someone else has the same idea and they go, ah, you had that idea, but now, no, sorry, we have the patent on it, so you need to pay us a billion dollars. So there's also... I I want to just offer the defense that, that kind, those kinds of patent trolls sometimes put up for themselves, which is that, well, we need to exist so that if a small inventor comes up with an idea who doesn't have the wherewithal to protect it himself, he can sell it to us and monetize it, and then we can protect it. I, it's not clear how often that ever really happens, that it's really they're helping the little guy. Most of the time, it's them buying a, or doing something like intellectual ventures or buying some cache of patents that have just been sitting around in a dusty corner somewhere. So a patent uh, troll 
defi- is defined as some uh, some entity that collects patents and then basically scares people with, with them. no intent to I, use I would, them. I would say a patent troll is an entity which makes substantially all of its money from litigating patents or threatening yeah. to litigate patents. Yeah, I think that's a so they don't have a real business. That, that That is their business. So look, now let's go to our listener Rob's point, which is that the threat to litigate patents is what it seems like the real problem with the, the patent troll industry. Namely, that because the person who threatens to litigate doesn't have to pay any consequences if they lose, they don't even have to pay the lawyer's fee for the other side of the people they're, they're threatening. What, what often happens is when people um, are being threatened by threat by patent trolls, they just say, okay, just take the money or I'll figure some other way of doing it. And so they never actually go to court. And what the problem with that is bad patents don't get discarded in court when that, they should be. That, that's true. Um, and also, courts don't really have the ability to discard bad patents. This is another well, huge problem. They do sometimes. If you look at what happened in the case between um, in the RIM, Research in Motion, and their patent troll, the patent in question was clearly an atrocious patent. There was lots of prior art. It was way broad. It was crap. But the judge basically just said, no, this was awarded by the patent office. So as long as it's in force, we have to assume that the patent is correct. And now we just litigate. I, I would argue that's changing a bit. Um, there was fairly last year, I believe, a, a case known as Alice Corp versus CLS Bank International, a Supreme Court decision that basically uh, said that the fortune cookie rule I was talking about before won't work anymore. They said that you but it, it's, can, so, it's so much broader than that. The, like yeah. you can't. Yes, there might That's, be little bits about on the internet or whatever. Yeah. But you know the idea of a business process patent still exists, which is just oh, we invented a way of doing something. You know, or um, well, business. But also the Bilski case. Sorry, I'm not going to get start naming off Supreme Court cases. But the, the my my general point is the Supreme Court is in its own gradual way beginning to step in and do what Congress has and, and limit the scope of the kinds of things you can patent. And you're seeing judges respond by actually invalidating patents now, more so than they were before these cases. So I think there has been some, there has been a little bit of shifting. Um, but I do think also this point about uh, the ease with which we can sue and, and, and the lack of consequences, if you even if you lose in court and just bring a frivolous suit that you get defeated on, um, is a problem. And there has been some legislation suggested um, that or has been proposed to deal with that. Things like, you know, if you bring a patent suit, you essentially have to put a lot of money in escrow. Right. So it ties up your capital, so you can't just bring these suits. Right, frivolous in bulk. lawsuit seems like a big problem, but it's not actually a patent problem. I mean, it's it's. I think it's a patent problem and a frivolous lawsuit problem, mm-hmm. and it's the way those two issues kind of marry each other and create and this there, really awful. There, there are also patent problems which are not patent troll problems. There's there's problems with the patent system yeah. which aren't just to do with patent trolls, um, and the big one is that if you want to do anything in technology. The way you create great ideas and create, you know, multi-billion-dollar ideas in the tech space these days is not to invent something new. It's to take a whole bunch of stuff which already exists and put it together in an innovative and clever way. Yeah, and that is something which we should be encouraging. But that is something which is basically impossible unless you're one of a handful of multi-billion-dollar companies with huge defensive patent portfolios. So Google, I don't know if you remember this, when when they bought Motorola for $5 billion, they weren't buying any particular business. They were just buying the patent portfolio, and not because they wanted to monetize it directly, but just because they knew that Motorola had certain patents which were very valuable in theory – 
And that if anyone sued them, if any other big company tried to sue Google, Google could say, hey, that's not a good idea because we can sue you just as easily. And it becomes a defensive. And unless you have $5 billion and all of those patents in your back pocket, you basically aren't allowed to innovate. I do agree that it, and I've heard from engineers that, you know, they spend way too much time thinking about patents and thinking about patenting every idea they have and sorting through the patents that they're using or or bypassing. Um, it, it occurs to me that maybe in certain fields, the patent system doesn't work as well. Like maybe the, it's like 20 years, right? Once you've patented something, you, 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 people have to yeah, pay you for it. Yeah, this is the technology industry where like 20 years is forever. Right. I mean, and and so it's maybe we well should, known yeah. that, for instance, there's no real point in even trying to get into the 3D printing space just because it's, it has all of these crazy patents and patent trolls and patent big yeah. companies. Is I mean, fundamentally, the problem with the U.S. patent system is it works very, very well for one very large vested interest, which is... The pharmaceutical ph- industry. Yeah, pharmaceutical industry. Exactly. Yes. It works extremely well, and we could probably devote an entire episode to yeah. to this subject, but the, the short version of it is is because in order to develop pharmaceutical, you need it takes a lot of money and a lot of lead up time and a lot of failure. And so you need some guarantee you're going to be able to sell that drug for a long time. And moreover, I, you know, if we're going to name real problems, we can also name the fa- the way that the pharmaceutical company actually extends past yeah. those 20 years That's true. That's by these whole, sort of fake inventions. Another whole issue altogether. But yeah. And also it's very particular. There's a molecule. Like you can patent very something yeah, very particular. It's, it's not an abstract idea. So the things that work very well for protecting the pharmaceutical industry and making it function somewhat work terribly for software, I think, and that yeah. that's that is the big split here is that we have one patent system for very disparate industries. Yeah, and so, well, I'm, I'm going to end by on on a slightly hopeful note, which is this wonderful thing called the Open Invention Network, which is which has grown up out of the open source sort of Linux based um, software world, where a bunch of big companies, including Google and other people like that, have signed on to this OIN and said we are going to patent a bunch of ideas but then we're just going to make them open for anyone to use and if that if that expands that would be amazing yeah it's basically cessation of the patent it would be nice Let, let's let's move on to some numbers here because we haven't had nearly enough numbers i have the nerdiest number can what? i go last yes oh you want to go last yeah. you want that number yeah. all right i'm gonna go first i'm gonna call back uh an episode from quite a while ago that we had this philanthropy episode Um, with Rob Reich and Jesse Eisinger, and I really enjoyed recording that episode. And one of the things we talked about in that episode was the way that Lincoln Center had paid $15 million to the family of Avery Fisher, who had previously donated $10 million. So he kind of weirdly made a profit on his donation (laughs) um, so that they could then rename the hall, which was Avery Fisher Hall. Well, the other shoe finally dropped this week, um, in return for a hundred million dollar donation, so this is my number, one hundred million dollars. David Geffen gets his name on the hall. So we are now going to be listening to music in David Geffen Hall from here on in, in perpetuity, because he's decided because he's, I believe the technical term is an asshole, that he needs to have his name on the hall <laughs> in perpetuity. So in perpetuity, we're going to be listening to music in David Geffen Hall, and this has cost him a mere $100 million, which I guess is proof that people will spend vast amounts of money on like weird objects. So maybe David Geffen is the person who will wind up buying Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. He's worth... <laughs> He's worth $6.9 billion. He can certainly afford it. Yeah, it's, wow. it's like a, 
again, come back to the Egyptian thing. It's like a pharaoh putting his name on an obelisk and hoping that no one's ever going to wipe it off. Um, so my number uh, is 23. It's like the opposite of a nerdy number, but that's Michael Jordan's player's number. I'm bringing it up because... Oh, it's a sexy billionaire. Yeah, it's a sexy billionaire. Michael Jordan yes, is yes. now officially on the Forbes billionaire list. I still don't think anyone really wants the Michael Jordan of 2015 in a red room, but it's he is, I think, a fairly sexy billionaire. And I just wanted to mark this occasion. He's basketball's first billionaire. Uh, Magic Johnson jokingly uh, tweeted, ask him, asking to borrow some money. It's, everyone's having a good time with this. <laughs> Michael Jordan, yes. Um, okay, my number is 2063. How many people know what that is? Um, is that the it's a, it's year? a year? It's a year, it's yes. It's the year. What happens in the year 2063? Are we all going to be underwater? It's the year that the Vulcans make first contact with humans. <laughs> oh, oh, this yes. is a sad number. So this is uh, R.I.P. Yeah. Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, R. Love R. that guy. Leonard Nimoy, indeed. On which sad note, we will bring this edition of Slate Money to an end. Thank you very much for listening all the way through. Um, do subscribe if you like the show. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Um, where you can also leave a review would be wonderful if you did and do keep on writing to us slatemoney at slate.com we really really do love hearing from you and we will talk about what you write on air <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing but if you want it we might we won't mock you we, we won't mock you yeah. um, thanks very much to Audrey Quinn who was the producer for Slate Money this week and also the managing producer Joel Meyer and the executive producer Andy Bowers. So Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network. So there's not just us. There's all manner of things from the New York Times and Inc. and you name it. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Thank you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.